Yeah, I'm going to Vegas, and I got a cruise next week. Oh, well, there's there's worse places to go. Yeah, yeah it's not, it's not not too hard to take. I'll, yeah, I'll probably be at Demonico this time tomorrow night. This episode will take no prisoners because no one is safe. Everyone's in for some real good information and maybe even a few body slams at the same time. We know a lot of you listen to this podcast, and if you do, please take a few minutes to write us a review on iTunes. Your reviews help us keep the number one spot and help solidify us as the official podcast of bourbon. I know you've heard me say it on every podcast, and you're going to continue to keep hearing me say it, but Patreon is how we keep this show going, and your support is very much needed. If you haven't supported us yet, please visit patreon.com and consider becoming a monthly sponsor. As a token of our appreciation, we'll send you some cool stuff in return, like t-shirts and bourbon samples. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash bourbon pursuit to learn more about all the cool swag. Your sponsorship is what keeps this podcast going. Enjoy this week's episode. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 a cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com.
Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast. Just Kenny here tonight, and we are, I guess you could say, winding things down a little bit, but we're going to have a fun one tonight. You know, this is uh, this is somebody that has been around in the bourbon realm for, uh, I'd say, quite a few years now, but it's it's always funny to see the, the remarks and retorts that come from everybody that talks about them, whether it's good or bad. And I think that to even be in this game now, you got to have pretty thick skin because everybody's got an opinion. So with that, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest because I'm very happy that we are the first podcast to actually have him on. Uh, there's not too many news outlets that have ever interviewed him, and the only people that ever talk about him are always in third person. So tonight we have the infamous Bourbon Truth. He's also known as Lloyd Christmas. You're not going to find out his real name. You're not going to have a picture of him or anything like that. Super anonymous. But if you've never heard of him, he runs a blog called thebourbontruth.tumblr.com. His tagline is, don't drink the purple Kool-Aid that the crappy booze companies are feeding you. Louisville.com even touts him as the Howard Stern of bourbon. And it kind of shows a badge of honor if you get bashed by him at some point. So, <laughs> so Lloyd, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. <laughs> so I uh, hope I didn't talk your head up there too much. No, no, it's good. I, um, I, I love to be hated and I hate to be loved sometimes. <laughs> I guess I guess with this, I mean, it's it's kind of turning into a love-hate relationship between people that are getting into it um, and then distilleries and everything like that, right? I'm amazed every day. I, I keep seeing things that I just shake my head at. <laughs> so let's let's go ahead and kind of rewind a little bit. Um, I guess let's kind of start off. What first got you into bourbon in general? Like, was it just something that you've been drinking for a long, long time, or is there something that that kind of got you around to even just drinking it in the the very beginning? Well, two, two things probably happened in in the mid '90s that I can recall put put together and had a very bad scotch uh, weekend and uh, woke up with a, a head that hurt. Pretty sure I probably woke up uh, over a toilet at the same time. And the next day after that happened, and went to the seal buck and went to the bar and said, uh, geez, uh, I hear that this bourbon stuff is pretty good. You want to hear about it? And that's where it all started. At the seal buck. Can you remember like what that drink was that kind of got you uh, moving towards that direction? Well, what I'm about to tell you is... Uh, is, is is the very thing that I that that I tell people not to do, but it was Van Winkle. But that was back <laughs> in the day when, when Van Winkle was no big deal, and no one heard of it. You couldn't get it in most places because no one wanted to sell it because no one was buying it. For today, while well, you can't get it. Yeah, today it's a completely different story. Yep. So so let's so that was in the early, that was the mid nineties. You said, and then about what time did you start blogging? I want to say it was probably around five to seven years ago uh, when I just had enough. I was um, a couple of things that happened is uh, I, I had a, a a slight little run in before Lloyd Christmas was born with uh, the Van Winkles. Kind of set me off a little bit, and I just left, always left a sour taste in my mouth. And talking in one of the rooms back then. Because there was only probably, how I say back then, you know, five, seven years ago, it wasn't that far ago, but in whiskey years, it was probably about 100 years ago. And uh, we were t talking and the, the Van Winkles came up and I think I made reference to the fact that uh, Julian couldn't, uh, you know, work a still if it was, uh, if it uh, depended on his life. <laughs> and, uh, and somebody, dare you speak poorly of the Van Winkles? And it kind of went from there. And I, I think... I think in that conversation, uh, the Bourbon Truth was born, and 
it all came out at that point and found out that people didn't really want to hear about honesty and didn't really want to, you know, the, the little voice in your head that the things that you don't want to say in whiskey or about whiskey that you wish you could say. And that's where it all happened. So is that kind of what made you start blogging? Was that initial run in with the Van Winkles? I would say that that was probably one of the things that always stuck in my craw and made it uh, a sensitive subject because it was probably my first truly negative experience within the industry and dealing with them. And I'll I'll tell you what it was, was I had a sentimental bottle that I had drank with my dad when he was alive. And I'd gone back to the Van Winkles about four or five times uh, and said, you know, geez, I'd really like to have a finish this bottle with you guys. It was an old Lawrenceburg Van Winkle, and I said, I'd really like to finish this bottle with you guys one day. I'm 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 traveling into Louisville a couple of times a month, and over about the period of a year, it was always like we're too busy, we're too busy, we're too busy. And this was a while ago. This is when you could still find the stuff on the shelves fairly easily, and they just didn't have the time of day. Um, and that continues to this day, where they just have this this uh, layer of scum across their uh you know, their, their smiles and they're as i always say they're the luckiest people alive because they don't really have to do anything but sit there and be be a van winkle um so that that kind of set me off and that stuck with me as probably one of my more negative stories at the time <laughs> okay so we might we might touch back on the van winkles a little bit because it sounds like uh you've got some disdain for them and it sounds like uh, it, i know that you know it's one of those sore subjects that's just in the world that we have to deal with right now because everybody's either on the hunt for it or they've heard about it through social media or through even mainstream media and they want to get their hands on it but i think uh i think i want to kind of save that for a little bit Okay. I kind of want to rewind back a little bit um, and and kind of talk a little bit more uh, just to kind of give folks an idea of, of what you do blog about. Uh, because, you know, we, you kind of already said, I kind of set it up for you. For anybody that doesn't know about uh, the bourbontruth.tumblr.com, kind of tell them exactly what you do blog about. Well, I blog about whatever comes to my mind usually. I could be sitting and reading a, a tweet and see something. I could read something in the newspaper. I can be at the store. I remember one day I was at the store and I was walking down one of the aisles and there was this pimply faced 17 year old kid that was stocking shelves and some nice lady walked up and said, excuse me, I've got to buy a nice bottle of bourbon for my husband. He's got some friends coming over and he asked me to pick up a bottle of bourbon. I don't know anything bourbon about bourbon. Could you help me? And I just stood and stared. I'm like, well, first of all, the kid's 17 years old. Second of all, not that if you're stocking shelves, you don't know about bourbon, but when you put those two things together, 17-year-old stocking shelves, chances are he's not going to know anything. And certainly that's what happened is uh, he came off and he said, well, a lot of people buy this one because you know, this is the one that the shelf is always empty. So this one must be a good one. And she's like, okay, thank you. And, and I just looked and shook my head and that became a story. So sometimes that's how they're born. Sometimes it's something that pisses me off. Sometimes it's something that is a good thing. And uh, if people re- do read the blog, you'll notice that I do write about good things. I do compliment people. I do, uh, you might say a hundred, uh, you know, it's sort of like they say, uh, it, it takes several years to attract a new customer and it takes seconds to lose them. I could be very friendly with a particular brand and get along pretty well with them and have a lot of positive things. But the first time you say something negative about it, well, forget everything good that you've ever said. Now you're an enemy. Now you, uh, 
you know, you've got a problem with the brand, so you must be a bad person. So that comes out uh, in in the blog, and yeah, and I've changed also over the years. Uh, I've tempered myself a bit, believe it or not. So I guess that's a good question to ask: is that you know, in this in this age right now of the boom and everything happening, how important is it to have bloggers and authors out there that are giving unbiased and you know, very truthful kind of statements out there because there's, there's, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of authors that write for the whiskey wash or, you know, Fred Minnick and all these other different people. Um, and who knows where their biases either lie or they don't lie. Um, and you know, whether something's happening by giving free samples or whatever it is that kind of makes you change that bias. How it all happens is a pretty disgusting business. Unfortunately, it, uh, you do have your people that struggle to be honest and forthright and represent what the responsibility that they may or may not think that they have to their audience. But a lot of people are out there for the wrong reasons. A lot of them are out there to get free whiskey. And I've been told by many of them that if I bash them, I'm not going to be getting anything anymore or you know, geez, I didn't like that ABC bourbon, so uh, I can forget about them sending me anything from now on. And it's at the top of their heads. I, I don't, I don't care because I don't take anything for free. I don't take uh, samples mailed to me. Uh, if samples are offered to me by somebody or I'm at a whiskey event or something, sure, I'll drink it. But I'm not out there looking for samples, so I don't have to worry about is coming from. And that's not to say that a blogger is worried about those things. I'm saying that some of them are, and they often will uh, write their reviews where it's sort of like uh, one of the names that you just mentioned, uh, I, I, a bad review of, of the person. You'll see things like, um, this would make an excellent mixer for a cocktail. It's code. That's code for this socks. Um, but they won't say, I don't recommend this. Don't buy it. Now, there are some bloggers out there that will say that. Um, I don't like this. And I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it, is that the true measure of a good whiskey is would I buy a bottle of it? You know, if you've already bought a bottle, would you buy a second bottle of it? So if I'm at a bar, I have a drink of it, and I leave that bar, did I write down the name of that whiskey? Am I going to go to a store and buy a bottle? Um, If I take a sip of it at a, a tasting event, Am I going to go buy my first bottle? If I've already bought a bottle or it was gifted to me, am I going to go buy a second bottle? That's that's where it's at, um, plain and simple. And if you wouldn't buy a bottle or buy a second bottle, then you don't like it. It you know it's it's it can't get any simpler than that. Yeah, if it tastes good, it tastes good. If it tastes like shit, it tastes like shit, right? Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> call call a spade a spade. Yep. So I, I want to move on a little bit, um, and this will probably start diving into uh, the truth, I guess you could say. So there's, you know, there's always a lot of talk about distilleries and um, sales tactics, marketing tactics, what have you. What are the ones, in your opinion, that kind of stand out the most and why for being, uh, you know, duping customers or anything like that? Well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll, I'll twist that around for a second and then, get, and then circle back around to your question. Um, I understand they need to sell their product. I mean, they, they've got, it's on, it's on the shelf. There's people that are being paid to do whatever it is. As a matter of fact, there's, um, uh, there's some people, there, there's some writers that you wouldn't think that are being paid to write copy for, uh, for bourbon brands and for whiskey brands, but there are that, but they're out there. Some people that are actually well-respected. So, uh, 
you ha you have to write copy. You have to write something that's going to make people want it. It could be something that's on the label. It could be a neck tag. It could be whatever. I understand that part of it. But when you start getting into embellishment and you start getting into all of the uh, the crap that's that's going on out there right now, it 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 gets old. I mean, if I see one more comment, you know, I'll, I'll take I'll take this for an example. Most people they see that it's farm to glass, meaning they have their own farm or they're growing their own crop or whatever. Surface mm -hmm. that seems like it's something kind of cool and special. The problem is, is so Whistlepig, for instance, they they say that they're doing it, they're growing their own rye, but they're growing a very small, small percentage of their rye, just so that they can say that they're not saying the truth. They're not saying that special because we grow five percent of our rye. But they're not going to say that. They're not going to come out and, and do that. They're going to say, we're special because we're farm to glass. Well, everybody's farm to glass. If you're using wheat and you're using barley and you're using uh, rye and you're using corn, then I'm a farm somewhere along the way. Right. You're, uh, you're, missing, you're missing only 95% uh, of the other pieces there, right? Exactly. So it's all farm to glass. Now, if I'm growing it in the back, do you want that farm that you have that you're stuck with that you've now spent possibly several years getting ready for it to start producing? Now, all of a sudden, you've got your corn crop and you find out that your corn crop's maybe not that good. Maybe the moisture quality of it's not that good. Maybe it's shriveled up. Maybe you're in the middle of a drought and, um, and the, the sugar content isn't quite what it is. Now, what's the first thing that you're going to do? You're going to go to where it's consistent. You're going to go back to your to the buyers. You're going to buy up corn. You're going to buy up wheat. You're going to buy up rye. You're going to buy it because now I can buy the consistency. Because when those trucks roll in, they test every single batch. They bring it to a lab. They test every single batch. They look for farm bodies. They look for infestation. They look for moisture content, sugar content. They look for all kinds of things. You can't do that when you've got your corn growing in your backyard of your distillery. And now you're stuck with it if, in fact, you're being truthful and you're being farmed to glass. So one of two things happens at that point. You're either using an inferior product, so you could say I'm farm to glass, or you're using a product that at best is probably equal to what you could be buying it on the open market for from a quality place that's out there. So farm to glass really isn't that important when you really, but that's a big hot topic now, farm to glass. So it must be special. Um, you know, I still need to send my corn out to be milled. I still need to have things dried. I still, you know, you still need to do all those things with it. So, uh, in the case of uh, Whistlepig, I believe, I'm not sure if their distillery is uh, cranking on 100% or not at this point, but they were sending their rye to uh, MGPI to be distilled. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the amount of time it takes me to ship my rye from Vermont down to outside of Cincinnati, uh, I could probably buy fresher stuff, you know, that's... A, a, two-hour truck ride away. Uh, so if it's a matter of freshness, that's not really true either. So so that, that's one thing that bothers me is the whole, you know, farm to, farm to glass movement. I, it, it sounds good, but when you really break it down and you, you know what you're talking about, it's not so good anymore. Because no one should really end up being the, the Walmart of bourbon, if you will, or Walmart of whiskeys where you just kind of have everything under one roof. That yeah, it's true. I mean, it it um, if if it was so special, you would have your 
huge places. I mean, why wouldn't Maker's Mark be growing their own wheat um, if you know if it was that much of a special thing? They're not they're not doing it because they know they can do better on their own. Um, Jim Rutledge used to talk about grain sourcing a lot, and he still does when you get a chance to sit down with him, and he'll sit there and talk your ear off about grain sourcing and how it's important and, the, and GMO and you know all of these different things, but where you even cross his mind that they would grow their own corn, he would, mm-hmm. he would never even consider it. He's one of the most respected people, knowledgeable people out there. And if that's the case, you know, you've got other people out there that don't share that opinion. So if they're growing it themselves, they're growing it themselves at most likely more, it's more expensive. So this is, anyway you turn, it becomes a marketing issue. That's one of the things that's current right now that you have marketing. Another one that uh, burns me pretty good is, um, I don't know if you remember when they dropped the age statements of the Barton and the uh, old charter. And they mm-hmm. continued this to is put, probably, what, two, three years ago, right? Yeah, about that. And uh, even, even oh, they got sued for this, but they left the six and the eight on their bottles. And uh, Fred Minnick, I know, interviewed uh, Buffalo Trace or Sazerac, whatever you want to call them, and uh, interviewed them and said, uh, you know, why don't you change it? And they never really gave them an answer. And if you're not trying to fool people, you're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes, then why leave a six and the eight on the bottle when it has nothing to do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're probably one of the worst ones out there. I mean, it's one thing after the other of them trying to uh, take advantage of people and try to fool them. And, so I think we should we should we should harp on that a little bit more. Uh, just a little bit of side note: it's always funny to see people trying to sell their their eight and ten year old old charters and call them dusties when they were just like uh-huh. off the shelves two or three years ago, right? But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so let's talk about Buffalo Trace just a little bit more. Like what else? What else is happening behind there? Because I know you're not alone in this. Because a lot of people, you know, you could have uh, the labels that come from Buffalo Trace. Um, there's a lot of rumors that it come from Buffalo Trace and say they, you know, they cut back. I could say allocation or, you know, being able to like push out bottles just because they want to make more of a, uh, more of a scene in the market that looks like there's not enough to be had. Because I mean, if you think about it, uh, Thomas H handy, like, you know, for the, the BTAC line, like there's only a couple thousand bottles that go out every single year. Yet all that is, is just baby proof or sorry, barrel proof baby Saz. And they have the opportunity to put out like 15,000 bottles of it if they really wanted to, but they do that in, in a way to just keep driving demand. So what are the things about like uh, Buffalo Trace kind of still get underneath your skin? I'll give you an example. I'll give you a very strong hypothetical. You can decide uh, how uh, close to reality it is or not. But um, let's just say that uh, I was gifted with a a letter that had all of the uh, allocation models for a very large city's allocation schedule. So if you buy 200 cases of rain vodka, you get six bottles of Pappy. If you buy something else or whatever, this was laid out in a very methodical format where everybody saw it and knew what the rules of the game were. So if you're going to play this game, and you wanted to get your pappy at the end of the year, you knew that during the year I needed to buy X amount of these products. I needed to buy X amount of uh, uh, a fire and, 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 and the, you know, the, uh, you know, whatever the fireball, whatever they call their cinnamon stuff. 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know what the rules are up front. And they claim that that's not true and that they don't do that. But hypothetically, what if they did do it? What if that is how it happens? Now, people will say, well, they can't control what a distributor does. They can't control what a salesman does that's in a store. But plain truth is that they get complaints all the time. Certainly check up on people and you can certainly, it doesn't get done. It doesn't get done in the industry at all because there's other, other companies that do allocations and that are very clever with their allocations. So let's just say, like I said, hypothetically, this sheet existed and they knew about it and they knew that it was being done. That would make them awfully sleazy in my mind. Um, so it's things like that, brands that go into my opinions of them. Uh, I think that you, the way that they're doing their uh, barrel program right now is, is, is awfully sleazy. Uh, some people have to log on once, once a year or several times a year and find out if you, if you hit it just right feels like you're buying an iPhone when they're released at, you know, 1.30 in the morning when they, uh, when the, the allocations drop, you can get yourself a private barrel. But then all of a sudden you see a store down the street, he's got four private barrels that are coming in and he never signed on to anything. He never had to wait in line. He never had to worry about it. He was able to get his, uh, his private barrels. So why is it that some poor schmuck that just opened a store and is struggling to stick around or a bar that wants private barrels and other ones can't. Now, in the private barrel program, everybody's got a different way, but it's the only one that I know of that's as... That kind of goes with, you know, you scratch, or you've been rubbing my back forever, like I'll, I'll continue to rub yours and... Yep, exactly. I mean, Four Roses has a, a, an interesting program because they've shut their program off to anybody that wasn't doing it before, but that's a whole different story. That's for a whole different reason. But uh, but Buffalo Trace... And they're being transparent, right? I guess transparency is a big thing with this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, be, being honest about it and upfront about it. And it, it is it tough to sit there and tell somebody, geez, I can't give you one because where were you three years ago? Yeah, it's tough love, but you know that's that's the breaks. And it's the truth because there was, you know, I remember that um, the very first people that bought private barrels of Van Winkle uh, back when it was, when they were doing private barrels of it, those people, some of those people remain friends uh, to this day, but there's some people that just got kicked to the curb at the same time. I'm not sure about how that's loyalty, but, but it's not. So uh, there's, uh, we could, I could do an entire podcast with you just on the <laughs> things that piss me off with Buffalo Trace. You know, things like the experimental uh, warehouse. I mean, these yeah, are I guess that's, that's interesting. I kind of want to know about that because, uh, you know, Buffalo Trace, they, you know, they call out the experimental warehouse. We've got these, these roofs that, that they open and they close and we're going to try to redo uh, the tornado, uh, you know, the warehouse C stuff like, and, you know, fabricate it again. So I, I guess kind of talk a little bit about what pisses you off about, you know, warehouse X or whatever they want to call it. Okay, there's practically no testing that they've done in there that hasn't been tried and tested 50 times before in other situations. I mean, there's not too much novel and new that's out there that you have to discover a some miraculous thing that's like, oh my God, if we use the bottom part of a tree and it's growing in the north side, tight grain on it, 
it's going to make better barrels and better whiskey if we use that. Well, yeah. Uh, why don't you go over and ask Independent Stave that? They would have told you that 10 years before you started your stupid program. <laughs> there's, also, there's also an economies of scale problem there, too. Yeah. And, you know, and they're that, you know, what a lot of when you look at Single Oak, Single Oak was uh, all done at the same exact time. And they were all finished and they were all pulled and bought and, and bottled at the same exact time. So they knew before Single Oak was even released, which ones were going to be the winners. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't any rocket science. They're not waiting seven years uh, to develop the, the Single Oak winner. You know, if, if barrel number 110 was the winner, well, when they taste through them and they go, oh, wow, this is just phenomenal stuff. We just love this. This is just to have the single oak. The single oak is going to, the single oak barrel 110 is going to be the one. Well, now they're going to replicate it and start making it. So they get a three-year head start on that process. And, you know, they're coming out with the single oak edition. I don't know when they're coming out with it, but I'll bet you it's not going to be seven years after the last one came out. So well, we'll, we'll see. Um, it, it's just that they, I think that. And I don't know about you. I never saw a bar graph that showed what the votes were, or the tallies of, of anybody that did submit anything. Nope. Now that nope. I think about it. Nope. Never saw it. Never heard about it. It was always very vague and wishy-washy. There was like, I think they finally announced, they announced a few of the front runners as they were going. And then they announced a few of the finalists. And that was pretty much it. They didn't say what sucked the worst. Um, and some of the experimental things that they're doing right now, um, some of those things are horrible. I mean, they put out the, uh, I, I still know stores that have the oats and the rice. Um, <laughs> this stuff sucked. I mean, it sucked about as badly as you can, and you can't keep a straight, you know, a straight uh, face when you say that that wasn't a mistake of, you know, that they put that stuff out. Um I had a conversation with a master distiller about the uh, experiment that they did with uh, tequila barrels, and they never put them out because they sucked. And he pretty much kind of told me that they didn't put them out because they sucked. Um, I think that if they had tequila barrels at, you know, there, they'd put them out. You know, it, 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 they did the reverse. They put tequila out that was done in bourbon barrels. Um, but there's other things, too, is, you know, they they comp- they probably put up the biggest stink and the biggest fight with re- regarding people doing things with Van Winkle. But then they're just as guilty in the things that they do about Van Winkle. And one of the big problems out there right now is how do I know that it's not counterfeit? You know, how do I know that it's not a refill? Uh, for a quarter of a bottle, they can put anti-counterfeit things on their bottles and they don't. Why not? Why, why don't, you know, do they not care? Well, there's really no other way to to think about it. I mean, all that that exists in the wine and scotch world, but you don't hear about it in the bourbon world at all, right? And you know, I've been I've been to uh, you know go to your favorite uh, place that seems to have cheap happy, and they always seem to have it. Um, and take a you know when bartender's not looking, you know, I ask them to see the bottle and bottle at a certain you know if there's an O in the word vine. Um, or, uh, you know, at the bottom where it tells you the uh, proof, you know, put a little dot inside of that all. A month later, two months later, three months later, ask them to see that bottle again and see if it's the same bottle. Um, I've done it before and they're the same bottle. I mean, there's places that have been serving Pappy out of the same bottle for three, four years. <laughs> um, you know, and 
not something that they're hiding. It's there's no other excuse, no other thing that you can, no other reason you can come up with except they're screwing you over. Um, so there's a lot of things, you know, they, they obviously can't control something like that, but they can certainly control uh, counterfeits a hell of a lot better. They can control a lot of things if they were going to clean up their act and do a decent job. Um, and some people are smart and they start to clean up their act. I mean, even Mictors, believe it or not, um, you know, one of my most hated brands is starting to clean up their act a little bit. Um, and I'm starting to gain little teeny, teeny bits of respect back from them uh, because they've dropped some of the stupid crap that they were doing. I guess, guess ex- expand on that a little bit. Like what, what made you hate them either in the beginning or in what's kind of buying you back either more as a customer or just being more interested in them in general? Well, if you go back to 1753, you get, uh, I think it's uh, Shanks Farm, the story about the farmer and he started making uh, whiskey. I think it might've been rye whiskey or whatever, whatever whiskey it was that he was making. And then Shanks eventually grew and it became other things and it became uh, Bombergers and then they changed the name to Michters. They want to say that they were Shanks, that they went back that far, that they had something to do with it. And they didn't. They had nothing to do with it. And as a matter of fact, the whole their whole legend uh, that they sat on for the longest time about George Washington gave his troops Michters. Um, so this must be good. If this is good enough for George, this is good <laughs> enough for you. They based that on a collector society coin. So it was the, it was, I believe it was something like the Lancaster coin collector society that commissioned a hundred of these coins to be made. And it had something uh, with the historical significance of the area and the whiskey. And there was no historical basis that anybody could find other than that coin that George Washington ever drank Michters. Although Michters didn't start until the 50s and George Washington was dead for close to 200 years by the time that ever happened. But if you you want to go back and look at, you can't find a time when they can say, oh, George Washington was drinking this. Oddly enough, uh, Laird's does have paperwork, does have purchase orders with George Washington's signature that they did order Laird's for, you know, Applejack for the, uh, so there are people out there that have the proof that George Washington drank the whiskey, but Michter's isn't one of them or whatever you want to call them, Chatham. Maybe they just couldn't find it in Martha's diary or something. They couldn't find it. They used this, they used the coin. They even acknowledged that they used the coin. So they essentially took the, took the historical, story and they just ran with it they ran with it it beat beat it you know to an inch of its life and um they kept doing that and it was significantly bad and it started to get better once they came out with their own distillery so once they had their own distillery they could drop all the uh, the bullshit they didn't have to deal with willie pratt anymore willie pratt wasn't really good for anything but you know people laughing at and so he kind of went away and he was no longer their master distiller and they opened up their own distillery and they kind of slowly started to get away from mania thing and, and say, well, we've got our own distillery now. We've got very good people making our whiskey. So they didn't have the need uh, at that point to, to do as much of it. So, so they started to change, you know, because they, they didn't need to keep, you know, the old um, dog and pony show going. Um, the other thing that, um, 
not not necessarily Michter's, but uh, I know Whist- Whistlepig did it. Uh, they uh, initially put in that uh, their whiskey was from the United States when they filed. They had it had it listed as domestic when it was Canadian. And they got caught and they had to pull the uh, their TTB application and they had to resubmit it with the proper information on it. You've got other comp- you've got other companies. As a matter of fact, there's there's a bourbon that's out there right now. Um, the only reason I'm not giving you the name is because um, I'm actually on good terms with the company. Okay. <laughs> and and, um, and they're good people. They have not uh, done everything by the book, but but they're good people, and I'm never looking to to uh, mess with people that are good people. Um, and they filed their application for their bourbon. Um, and because it was a barrel finished bourbon, um, and the way that they were going about doing it, they actually, actually wasn't, it wasn't their uh, bourbon. I believe it was their rye. They had to file it under a different category. So it's listed as a spirit specialty, not rye. And it's listed with the formula. Now, I've got a TTB application that's got a formula and it's listed as a spirit specialty, which screams that it's not real, that they had to put an additive to it. And I believe that they can put up to a two and a half percent additive. So they can put a sweetener in it. They can put glycerin in it. They can do whatever they want. They can put an artificial flavorings in it. They can put natural flavorings in it, different things when that's done. But when you walk into a liquor store, you're not looking at the TTB application. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the biggest problems is you're trusting people that they're not going to mess around. So if you look at something like barrel finishes, and I wrote uh, a blog post about this probably about three years ago, uh, you'll find that a bunch of people um, have their listing as a spirit specialty for their barrel finish. And you'll see a formula listed and other ones when the formula is not listed, uh, because they didn't disclose that they they had to put something in it to file as a formula, they got listed as a rye or a bourbon. But those things aren't uh, transparent. You don't know that. So once you start to look and you start to poke, you start to go, "Huh, I found out about this, and um, I'm not happy." You know, I trusted this brand, and now I found out that you know they're screwing with me. They've been screwing with me for the last three or four years. You have people like Templeton Rye that was telling people that their rye was made in, uh, what was it, Templeton, Iowa? Yeah, it was cra- handcrafted, I think, was the handcrafted in, in Iowa. And I think they got they got slammed on a few things. And honestly, I think that's what kind of started a, a lot of this in the very beginning. And that's what went to a lot of news outlets was when the whole Templeton thing went down because they got slammed because, A, it wasn't handcrafted, and B, it was just coming from MGP. And that's kind of what but almost put MGP on the map for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it did, and uh, and it woke some people up, which is which is good because people are are pretty sleepy. But you know the the thing that really gets me was when a brand just assumes that people are stupid enough, and they go throwing things around. It, what's really interesting is how Diageo handles their uh, their orphan barrel and their uh, the, I think it's the blade and bow now. They even put it's you know from the Stitzewello Distillery. I was, I was, I was really hoping you were going to start talking about Diageo. Please go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know they've got their own distillery now, but they're still pulling the they're still pulling the Stitzeweller card. The amazing thing about it is, if you took a, a hundred average people at a at a whiskey bar and you asked them what what a Stitzeweller was, 
do you get five of them that know what Sitzewella is with any kind of accuracy? Possibly. I have no idea. What do you think? I, I would say five is probably a good number. And and maybe if you ask the bartender, you might get six, maybe. They're selling that as a as a plus. They're selling that as, oh, look, this is this is from the Stitzewella distillery when it's not. But don't forget, Bullet uh, was from the Bullet distillery for years and years and years until they had to change the label because mm-hmm. they were getting in trouble because there was no Bullet distillery. There is now, but there wasn't for 15 years when it said, you know, made at the Bullet distillery. When you start doing stuff like that, um, that's just, it's, it's sleazy, it's disgusting, and they deserve what they get. You know, if somebody wants to call them out and call them a bunch of, you know, lying scumbags, well, guess what? If the shoe fits, wear it. Um, and, um, and, and that's one of the things that gets me, uh, that uh, there's no reason to have to BS people um, out there. I mean, there's a little bit of embellishment that everybody does, but um, I, I, I think it was yesterday um, that there was uh, a, uh, a new label that SKU uh, posted, and it was just this massive amount of words. It had, there had to be a thousand words on a back label about this brand, and it was like a poem or something. And it just makes you shake your head and go, like, what, is, what are these people thinking? Um, but the thing is, is that I, I didn't get halfway through it to read it all. But to me, from what I saw, they weren't lying. They were just really bad at marketing. Mm-hmm. No one's going to stand in a whiskey aisle and read through, you know, this, you know, this gibberish because that's what it was. Like I said, it looked like it was some kind of a poem um, that somebody wrote. So, what do you think is is doing? Uh, I guess if you compared the the major players right here, if we said Diageo versus Luxco in regards of just sourcing and selling stuff as as pure marketing, like who's who's doing it worst? You know, Diageo is fairly new to American whiskey. They've got Dickel, they've got Bullet, but Buffalo Trace, I think, is probably your worst. Okay, I'll take that. Um, so, you want to move on a little bit, or you want to you want to harp on anything else in there? I'm sure I'm going to find stuff to harp on as we go. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, 
then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. I want to go back back to this one thing only because this is this is one thing that I think most people might find interesting is that you know I want to ask your 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 truthful opinion you know just about the Van Winkle piece again only because you know you have a I don't want to say a rich history but you have a history and in your opinion with the current stock that's coming out that's just pure Buffalo Trace like it's it's Sitzelweller's gone it's not even blended Sitzelweller it's just pure Buffalo Trace is there a reason to even buy it anymore first. I know Van Winkle history back to the 1800s. I mean, I um, studied it, read the book, read plenty of articles about them, their family history. I don't really have a problem with Van Winkle until uh, uh, Julian III and, uh, and his son Ringo, which I finally uh, call uh, Preston his son because, you know, Ringo's the world's luckiest drummer and Preston's the world's luckiest son. So. <laughs> So that's why I refer to him as Ringo. I think most people get the uh, the humor, and if you want to call it humor, but so it's not really the Van Winkles. I mean, I respect what the Van Winkles have done. There was a great line that was used in um, it was in the book. They were talking about rectifiers, and that rectify, you know, he was speaking before this daughters of the uh, American Revolution, and it was talking about were and how they were putting out junk and people were drinking it and going blind and just this nasty stuff and one of the ladies said oh geez mr julian isn't it true that you were a rectifier at one point yourself and he came back and he said ma'am he goes there's nothing is there's nothing nothing cleaner than a reformed prostitute and (laughs) you know and it's great little stories like that that you know that you love you know you love it you you could tell in those days but it was the wild wild west you know, back of 33 is when they opened up uh, the uh, Stitzwald Distillery. And, you know, they had to get themselves through prohibition. And so, it, you know, it's not until after Julian II passes away and, you know, Julian III, he's, he's going he's gonna to go out of business. I mean, he's he's going to lose the whole company. He's going to go back to selling shoes or whatever the hell it is that he was going to have to do in life because he didn't want to have anything to do with whiskey until his father grabbed him and brought him back into it. I understand that part of their history. I understand that, you know, what they do. I mean, people talk about Stitzwell, like, oh my God, Stitzwell, it's just this greatest stuff. Did you know that the well was polluted? I didn't know that. Yeah, the well was polluted. So there's some stuff out there probably that's got, you know, whatever kind of taint was in the water. And then after the well was polluted, they changed to city water. So people talk about, well, Maybe it's the magic of the water. Well, if it's the magic of the water, it's the magic of the water that uh, Bernheim was using and Belmont and all the other distilleries that were open back then still. So they, um, Ed Foote, which was the last master distiller, um, I was at an event that he spoke at um, a couple of years ago uh, at the Derby Museum, and he talked about the last and the final few years. And the interesting thing was when Stitzweller closed, they took the whole move them over to New Bernheim. New Bernheim opened in 92, 93. And they took them all and they moved over there. So when people start talking about 
um, some of this, I don't know, Bernheim, you know, they talk about pre-fire because Heaven Hill ended up buying Bernheim and it became the, uh, you know, the Heaven Hill distillery. But those, that whiskey, that uh, a lot of it ended up in the, uh, we're selling for four or $5,000 right now, was this 93, 94 um, whiskey that Ed Foote and his crew that were over at Sitzweller made. Mm-hmm. So if you're falling in love with Sitzweller, then you got to fall in love with New Bernheim when it first opened. You're going to fall in love with that, then you got to fall in love with the stories that ha- Maker's Mark, how supposedly Van Winkle in uh, helping at Maker's Mark, and he was best friends with the with the Samuels, and he helped them and gave them the recipe and gave them their yeast, and and then Maker's Mark came out. So then you got to fall in love with Maker's Mark. So if you know the history, um, it's pretty hard to still be chasing the you know the, this this Van Winkle dream that's out there. Uh, is it good? Yeah, it's good whiskey. Uh, is it is it that good that people should wait in line and camp out for three days? I guess if you're poor and you can know you can sell that bottle for five hundred dollars, then it's worth it. <laughs> um, right. No, nope, I got you. That's who's doing it. So the one you mentioned a few names right there about chasing after the you know the names of you know if you follow the Van Winkle line and you're you're not shy about talking about how you have a, a love affair with Willet so kind of talk about uh, what you do like about Willet in general because I'm I'm a fan myself you know maybe it's just the family crest or whatever it is but you know I I can't get enough of you know trying to acquire those bottles I I got to be uh, familiar with them back before probably right, right about when they first started distilling before anybody really wanted or cared or were lining up. Um, I, you know, I, I got to know them pretty well. And I would say that I've, you know, gotten to make some friends over there as well through, through the time, you know, we have conversations and we, and we talk about certain things that I wouldn't repeat, but in some of the uh, candor that they use, they would never do certain things, never, never sell things a certain way, never screw people over ways that other people are doing it, never fool people. They have a very, you could say it's a kind of a snooty attitude because it's like, we own us, you know, we don't have to answer to anybody, we don't owe any money to anybody, so we can do whatever the hell we want to do. I look at that as a positive. They have not released any of their weeded whiskey yet um, because they don't think it's ready. So, but they can afford to do that. It's going on five, five years old right now. Mm-hmm. I've tasted it and it's, it's damn good, but it's probably not coming out until next year. It's not something that they feel that they're ready for yet. Um, so I had some conversations with them. That I, I know what goes on in their mind. I asked them one time, um, you know, if somebody just pulled up a tractor truck, load full of money and dropped it off and said, we want to buy your, buy your place. Would you sell it? And the answer was no. And I was pretty shocked. I was just like, yeah, yeah, they, you know, they've got to be getting offers all of the time because they're probably the, the rows of acquisitions that would want anybody would grab them in three seconds. But their attitude is, you know, our family makes whiskey. We're in the whiskey business. We wouldn't be in the whiskey business anymore. So, you know, you, you got to love people like that. And, um, you know, it's, 
I, I, it's, it's sort of the complete opposite of somebody that's out to try to screw you over and take your money, you know, lying to you about things. Right. Absolutely. So with that, I kind of want to move on a little bit and it, it might fall in, it might fall in the same category because you see, you keep see will it doing itself, but distillers are continuing to push the envelope of cost. You know, bottles are increasing in price um, just in general, but that's, that could just be the market taking effect. It could be, you know, just inflation itself, but, you know, limited editions that were once uh, $50 two to three years ago are creeping upwards of 300 or $350 at retail now, you know, and will it's no exception to this, of course, because of their latest price hikes inside of the gift shop, as mm-hmm. well as their 20 plus years that are now um, $800 a bottle when um, a year or two ago, they were only 200. So what do you think? 20, is- 20, 26 year old. Yeah, exactly. So what do you they're, think? They're 22 year old. I think it's still around three or 400 bucks. Gotcha. So, I mean, what do you, what do you think is like the long-term effect of, of all these price hikes that are happening? Um, and, you know, because in the short term, it doesn't matter. Like it's going to sell if it's a, if it's a limited edition bourbon, but what's the, what's the long-term effect you think it's going to be? You know, I, I like to look at it like a car. You can have a, if you close your eyes and you sit in a car and somebody drives you to, I don't know, the grocery store and then somebody drives you back blindfolds you drives you back from the grocery store it turns out that you're in a twenty thousand dollar chevy on your way there and on the way back you're in a half a million dollar rolls royce but you were blindfolded and it didn't matter but all those people that saw you knew what you were in and what you had and what you were what you were driving in and if you had the blindfold off, you'd be like, oh, wow, <laughs> I'm taking a Rolls Royce back from the grocery store um, when it really didn't matter when you were blindfolded. And the same thing is true with with whiskey out there. Um, it is a it's drinkable art. It's drinkable. Uh, and you can't really do it that much. I mean, you can wear, a, I guess, a couple hundred thousand dollar watch. You can wear a whole bunch of jewels. You can you know, outfit, uh, you know, your house and expensive Oriental rugs and whatever. But if you're, you know, kind of money or maybe you have enough money, you buy a bottle of Pappy, your friend comes over and you're going to see Van Winkle. The thing that always cracks me up is the guy that's explaining to his friend what Van Winkle is and why it's so special. Um, because the guy doesn't know to begin with. Um, <laughs> and so he's got to, he's got to convince his friend that this is special because it's special stuff and he's got to convince him it's special. That friend, you know, maybe he shakes him off, but maybe the next day he goes online and goes, Oh, I got to get myself a bottle of Van Winkle now too. Um, and then he's out looking for, you know, for his, for his Van Winkle. So it's, I think it's, it's status. It's, you know, braggability. Um, like I said, a drinkable art and you can't do that with much. It is not, the only other thing that I know of that you just that that you collect and you destroy it is wine. You can think of something else. Let me know. <laughs> no, I'm I'm fresh out of ideas. Okay, so it's strange in that way, um, and that's why a lot of people don't drink it anymore. They keep it sealed, and they're supposed to worship the bottle of whatever it is. And there's um, there's bottles out there that are not even ten years old that you could get ten or fifteen thousand dollars for them tomorrow uh that costs 70 to 100 dollars mm-hmm. 
um, that's staggering. I mean, that's like, oh my God, you know, that's, you know, somebody that, uh, threw a couple cases of, uh, wax dip, uh, 19 year old A.H. Hirsch, uh, in their basement. When I say 19, yes, there is a 19 year old A.H. Hirsch. There wasn't many of them. I think there was about 400 cases, but there was a 19 year old A.H. Hirsch. They happened to sell for a hell of a lot more money than the twenties because they're rarer. But that bottle is probably a it's a five thousand dollar bottle, I would guess. Yeah, thousand dollar bottle, and it probably cost that person back in, you know, in the nineties when they bought it, probably cost them less than a hundred dollars. So I have two cases of uh, twelve of each one, twenty four. Do the math of how much money you've got there on just regular old decent bourbon. Sounds like we need to hang out soon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think I have any AHRs open, but I got some other. Like, I, I got other good stuff. I'm my uh, my open bottles are in the hundreds. So um, yeah, we'll have to stop by. That sounds good to me. So I guess that kind of leads into the next question. I mean, what what do you think of people like nowadays that are collecting bourbon? You know, you, you talked about Van Winkles and people that have these uh, pieces of art that sit on the shelf. And, you know, you yourself, you're a collector, right? I mean, you said you've got 24 bottles of the 19-year age Hirsch that is um, well-valued at way more than it, it would be incredibly hard to even open up. Um so, I mean, what do you see a problem with people that are just more or less collecting nowadays than actually drinking? Well, the drinkers hate the collectors. The collectors hate the people that give them a hard time. It's, you know, what exactly is collecting? If I open a bottle up that is phenomenal, I guess the, the last thing that I can remember that this happened with was probably the uh, Booker's 25th. Um I opened that up and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is a bourbon I want to drink the rest of my life. Um, so I've got to do something about it. And at that time, it was all over the place. And I wrote about it. I tweeted about it. I was telling people, you go out and get this stuff because you're not going to be able to get it in a few months and you're going to really hate yourself if you don't get as much of it as you can. So I went out and I ended up with, I think I got 30 bottles of it because I'm planning on drinking it the rest of my life. Now, am I collecting that? Um, or am I just a smart whiskey drinker? Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to say. There's a lot of people that never will open their, their bottles and don't intend to open their bottles. Or it's like, it's me, you know, $8,000. So you're going to wait for your, you know, people always ask me like, what's, you know, what's your favorite bourbon? And I'm like, well, can't answer that question because it's got about five different answers depending on what the question really means. And let's just say that I had my prize $15,000 bottle that I, had and I hadn't opened. And the doctor came in and said, you've got one day to live. Am I going to open that sucker now at that point? You know, I'm like, yeah, damn straight, I'm going to open it. Because um, somebody else is probably going to open it you know, in two days, if I don't open it and drink it. So there's times when people are going to open certain things, I think, but, uh, but a lot of times they don't. And I've seen people that will buy the bottle, sell it. Somebody will buy it from them 
they'll turn around and they'll sell it. All of a sudden, this thing's got a value of $4,000. Nobody's paying $5,000 for that bottle anymore. Um, and people stop buying them. And now all of a sudden, this guy's sitting there with a $4,000 bottle and wondering what he's going to do with it because, you know, geez, that's the mortgage payment or that's, that's the next mortgage payments for the next two or three months. I got to get rid of this bottle and I'm stuck. So, um, no, I'm with you on that. You know, so, um, so it's hard to say, you know, what is collecting? Um, is collecting, not collecting. Um, and, um, like I said, it's, it's, it's a lot like wine. Um, but it's interesting. Nobody, nobody's got a problem with wine collectors. What's identical. Right. And I mean, maybe it's because I don't know much about the wine world, but at least in the bourbon world, like, you know, you've got, you've got a short two month window in the middle of fall where pretty much everything comes out and it's up until, you know, just a, uh, you know, you've got a very short window to be able to go and get as much as you can. And then, then you figure out what you're going to do for the next year. So who knows what these people are, whether they're collecting, they're just in it to be able to, as you say, you know, pay their next mortgage or whatever it is. Yeah, no, it's, um, uh, you know, and the, and the crazy thing about it is a lot of people, they've, I mean, they've been drinking for a year and all of a sudden they're collecting hundreds of bottles of Pappy and George C. Stagg and William Weller's and you name it, they're, you know, they're in it. Um, I know uh, for a fact, several billionaires that have bought up a couple hundred thousand dollar collections instantly to have their collections, you know, immediately. And they go down to their wine cellar, I guess, and they put all their bourbon bottles down there and that's what they uh that's what they drink you know now the big thing in vogue is the private barrels the private barrels have taken over a lot of the uh specialness because there's not that much special that's out there Mm -hmm. i mean because pretty much those are just the barrels that just didn't get selected you know beforehand or whether they've you know been hyper aged i would say hyper aged but they've just been aged longer than anything else right and whether that flavor changes drastically over a year or two may or may not have a huge effect. Yeah. I, th- I think it's more of a, the individuality of it. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like if you had five children, each one's going to have their own personality. So, you know, you might in these barrels, you, you know, I, I particularly like a great long finish, but you hardly ever greater get a great long finish. Um, and you rarely ever get anything else that's bad with a great long finish you either have a it's good all the way through it or it's not good all the way through it and you don't get a great long finish so that's what i'm looking for when i'm picking a private barrel um and um unfortunately the less and less of them out there and it's harder and harder to get in there to pick it when you see people going into places like castle and key and they're there and i don't know what the hell they're doing but they think that they're in there picking a barrel to be put away, but they're tasting new make there or something that was new make six months ago. And that's, and they're picking that particular barrel and they're putting that barrel away. It's like, there's no way in the world, unless you're a super, super talented person with a super, super palate that has a super, super education to know exactly what it is that you're tasting, that you're going to be able to tell at that age. 
Um, I'm, I'm totally with you. That's it's funny that you say that. So the the barrel buying group that I'm in actually has a uh, an excursion, I guess you'd say, next month to go and pick out a barrel at Castle and Key. Yeah. And uh, it and it was funny because I I read one of the articles that you wrote about that, and you were like, it's just going to taste like paint thinner. Like you're there's no way that you can guess what this bourbon's going to taste like in three years, five years, seven years, and what it's going to be. So what's the point of even saving the barrel now? as you said in your article, except the fact that it just puts more money in Castle and Key's pocket to help keep funding a lot of their projects. Or, or keeping the lights on. Exactly. Um, you know, they, they, they're they they're making their money right now in that big warehouse where they're storing everybody else's whiskey. I mean, that's their, that's their money stream. And that money stream is only, only goes so far. So a $2,500 deposit or $2,500 a barrel you know, barrel whiskey costs seven hundred dollars to make, approximately five to seven hundred dollars to make it. Um, and when they turn around, and they sell it for twenty five hundred dollars years before it comes out. But what happens if they go out of business? I mean, if you look in history about people that lost fortunes because they had their barrels sold out from under them, I mean, you're not getting a stock certificate or some legal uh, ownership of that barrel. I don't know exactly what they do, but. You're not you're not becoming a corporation and taking ownership of that barrel when that barrel is being done for you. You're hoping, keeping your fingers crossed that in eight years when it's supposedly ready, and then that's ready with quotation marks because when is it actually ready? Um, that everything is going to still be the same. But what happens when some people think it's ready in six years, and some people think it's ready in eight years, and uh, um, half the people no longer drink bourbon anymore and they want their money back. And it, it, it just gets awfully messy. Or it, could, or it could be bought by Diageo and those all become orphan barrels. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> they've got, uh, they've got uh, 12 Rick houses or however many Rick houses over there. Um, that doesn't count. <laughs> so, you know, following that, that, that castle and key thing, you know, I know we, I've been holding you up for an hour here and I kind of want to, uh, start wrapping this up, but I do want to ask one more question. You know, when we're talking about castle and key as a, as a prime example, uh, because that is, that is today. I mean, that would be considered craft whiskey, uh, because they don't necessarily have a bourbon on the market. If they do put a bourbon out, um, it could be something that might not be very good because you still, you know, th- the problem is, is that you have investors, investors, they want to get their money back. So they got to put something on the market to be able to just, um, start driving sales. You know, do you really think that craft whiskey stands a chance here, uh, in the next few years, whether they keep siphoning money or if they're just going to lose out to the big guys at the end of the day? Well, they're over 800, uh, over 800 now. I Last number I saw was about 800 craft whiskey places. Um, probably one of the worst things to happen was those, you know, when High West got bought up and all these places got bought up and High West guy walked away with, I don't know, $100 million, mm-hmm. $150 million after he probably, you know, I'm sure he's had some investors he had to pay off, but he still walked away with, you know, a boatload full of money. That, for doing nothing more than buying MGP whiskey too, right? Mostly. I mean, he did have some of his own that he was mixing in and some of his own younger stuff that wasn't very good. But but yeah, that's what he that's what he did. He was buying MGPI. Um and um but he's a chemical engineer and, and you know what? He knew how to make whiskey. Um and there's a lot of people that are doing craft 
that know how to make whiskey. I mean, they've apprenticed at the right places. They've done it for people. I mean, the the um, Stolen Wolf that were the ones that uh, originally they were going to call themselves Bomberger, but Michter's sued them and they ran into all kinds of legal trouble. So now they're called Stolen Wolf. Well, uh, they're in the midst of finally getting the approvals for their construction. They're going to start building now. And uh, Eric, which is the the younger of the two, uh, is the wolf part, and the stall part is Dick Stall, and he was the last master distiller at Nictors. And he has, I don't know, 20, 25 years of distilling experience. So when they start making whiskey, this guy's going to already know how to make whiskey when it starts. But a lot of these people, you know, they took the short course. They took the five-day course uh, in Louisville, and now they're master now they're master distillers, and they're out there using their retirement money and their college fund to fund their dream. Um, that's when it's really bad. That's when you run for the hills. That's when you grab these people and you're like, "Don't do this." You know, you're 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 never going to find the the place on the uh, shelves. I was at one of my favorite liquor stores last week. And uh, the owner came in and said, uh, and I was having a cigar there and, <clears throat> and a couple glasses of a uh, new private barrel. And the owner came in and said, I've got a salesman coming in with some a bag full of whiskey. You mind helping me out? And I was like, no, 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 not a problem. I'll come and I'll help you out. And he takes out these two or three bottles from some craft place I've never heard of. And uh, I said, um, are they making this themselves? And he goes, yeah, of course they are. And I'm like, well, how do you know? And he says, well, you know, that's what I heard. And I was like, okay. I'm like, do you know when they started making it? And he goes, no. And I said, you know, this isn't straight whiskey. I mean, if there's any word at all on a bottle of whiskey that somebody should be paying attention to, it should be the word straight. If it doesn't say straight on it, don't buy it. And why Kentucky straight bourbon is, you know, 10 times better than something that isn't from Kentucky and it doesn't say straight and it's clear and you know it's going to taste nasty um you know so i said you know this isn't even straight he goes yeah i think it is straight i'm like it doesn't say it's straight and he goes yeah but i think it is i said can you tell me what straight whiskey is and he says no not really so then how do you know that it's straight whiskey now this is a guy that's trying to get a a a craft brand if you want to call it a craft brand because is it craft if it's not their whiskey I, i you know i don't know what that answer is but i don't i wouldn't uh if I were making it, I wouldn't consider myself craft. I'd consider myself a rectifier that I'm buying somebody else's whiskey and putting it in a bottle and and shipping it off. So mm-hmm. this is an example of you know they got themselves a distributor and he's out there banging the pavement trying to get people to buy it. And the stuff was okay. There was a rye, it was a bourbon, but it tasted young. Um, and so it might have been theirs because. But on the other hand, MGPI is only selling young stuff right now. They're only selling like half year old. Um, if you if if they're even selling it uh, to other people now, so uh, you know I tell people, and I've had people that have wrote, written me and said, "I want to start a craft place up. What what, what should I do?" I'm like, "Don't, <laughs> don't do it." I mean, it's the best advice you can give anybody right now, right? Yeah, it's like uh, you know. I want to buy a boat. You think that's a good idea? It's like, yeah. Everybody that buys a boat says it's a bad idea. I want to buy a restaurant. Is that a good idea? Um, You know, yeah, you might be one of the lucky few uh, if everything falls into place. um, I'll give you one more story. 
Catskill Distilling, I went up there uh, just because the place intrigued me and the started talking to the owner and he said, uh, I'm a lifelong veterinarian. I wrote about this too in my blog. He goes, I'm a lifelong veterinarian. And for some reason I got into distilling because I thought this would be a great place to, uh, for retirement. And he goes, I didn't realize it was my retirement. So I stopped being a vet. Now I'm a, a distillery. He says, but I did, but the smartest thing I ever did was I befriended Lincoln Henderson every single thing I was doing wrong. And I would send him samples and he would say, yep, you've got too much of this on there, too much of that. You gave this certain too much time. You did this with your still that was wrong. And um, unless you're spending big time money and you're getting a experience master distiller to stand by you and, uh, and be there and help you. There's only so many places that can afford that kind of money. Mm-hmm. So craft is dangerous in, in, you know, it's dangerous to start. And I maybe have two or three craft places that I really think that they've got something good, uh, that I enjoy drinking a second bottle of, but that's about it. Yeah, that's it's funny you say that because you know even this year we took a we took a little turn and we've we've had plenty of people that for the podcast they you know they got a craft whiskey and they say you know we'd love to come on the podcast and um, and don't be wrong like every, every once in a while there there might be a, a diamond in the rough but for the most times you know we'll get a sample and we'll be like uh, this could use a few more years or like you know don't age it in Florida anymore whatever it is but um, you know we we just kind of figured that those are always the ones that people didn't really care about because, you know, it's not distributed in their part of the area and uh, their story is fictional or whatever it is. Right. So yeah, I I can kind of understand that because we definitely took a turn in the podcast where we kind of really went back and started focusing uh, more along the lines of either the big ones and then doing a lot of, a lot of stuff like this and getting to hear it from the front lines. Cool. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's good to have uh, that kind of information out there. The people that are listening uh, are, amongst the, the the few that care enough to spend their time to, to listen to it. I mean, uh, hopefully that keeps going up and you keep getting more and more listeners. But uh, let's face it, the, when I asked you when he asked you about how many people would know what Sits a Weller was in an average bar, the average person's not listening to podcasts either and they're getting screwed over because they're not. Absolutely. Because there's just a, a label and at some point it might've been Solera aged, which meant there was like maybe a, a one milli ounce that was actually in there or whatever. <laughs> well, I've heard, I've heard, um, I've heard that, uh, there are places that are messing with Stitzeweller to do that too. And, uh, we, we already know that, uh, one of them is, uh, our friends over at Diageo. So, um, look know. for that one. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, if also, also you got to do is put one bottle, in there even though i think that there's a rule that says you're not allowed to take it out of the bottle and put it back a.a church the last bottling of a church that became the famous humidor all of those were in bottles they dumped them all out rebottled them so oh, i did not know that yep the the, the humidor a church was all bought back into the bought back from stores i believe it was all brought to uh i know that uh will it did part well they were kbd at that point but willett did part of it and uh and then buffalo trace did part of it but yeah that, that all came out of uh older bottles and rebottled i didn't know that because i did notice that the bottles did change where they were kind of like this like almost like bubbly glass instead of just the regular kind of clear glass the when they came out with the humidor 
Yeah, well, there's two that were from Frankfurt, and uh, the the ones, uh, the last ones in the humidor from Frankfurt, those are the ones that got rebottled. Interesting, man. You're a wealth of knowledge. We got to get you back on the show sometime. Oh, cool. Well, yeah, <laughs> come back on. Well, good deal. So, uh, Lloyd, even though that we we're pretty sure that's not your real name, uh, want to say thank you again for coming on the show tonight. Uh, I want you to give a chance just to kind of plug your 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 Twitter handle and your website uh, one more time for people that want to learn more about you well bourbon truth is uh, is the handle uh, on uh you can find me on twitter you can find me on tumblr um i think i even have the bourbon truth in one of those i forgot which one because it really doesn't matter to me <laughs> and uh people can uh jump on i'd be happy to uh chat with them i i answer people's uh message that they send me so uh yeah i'd uh if you're not already following follow Cool. And, and Matt Ralston asks, are you going to end up going on Facebook or anything, considering that's going to be the uh, the new medium everybody seems to go towards for, for bourbon knowledge? Uh, as far as doing my own Facebook site or as far as going live? Oh, joining those groups and all that other kind of nonsense. Uh, I'm, in, I'm, I'm in a group right now that we have some aficionados that take things pretty serious. And there's a lot of really good groups that are out there. But uh, as far as... Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to move off Tumblr. That's probably my next big uh, effort. That's that's probably pretty much it. Well, good deal. So uh, I want to say thank you again for coming on the show tonight. It was a pleasure to kind of hear everything that's going to be off the cuff, and we'll definitely want to have you come on again. Uh, you know, probably here in a few months or something like that. Kind of circle back, and if there's anything else that you're itching to talk about, to get off your chest, then you know, we're the place to be able to get you in front of a few thousand listeners. So if you like what you hear, make sure you support the show uh, on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bourbon Pursuit. Also follow us on all the social media channels at Bourbon Pursuit on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And with that, we will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.